Hi everyone, Anthony Fantano here, the internet's busiest music nerd, and you're listening to a new episode of the Needle Drop Podcast, our weekly roundup review podcast where we take the best of the Needle Drop and Fantano YouTube channels and give you my thoughts on the music of the week. In this episode, we are going to be talking about the new Julia Holter record, Aviary. If you're into Baroque pop, art pop, do not miss out on this album. It is massive. It is beautiful. Also, the new Daughters record, You Won't Get What You Want, maybe my most glowing review of the year, Amazing Fusion of Noise Rock and Industrial Music. Then the new Current 93 record, a neo-folk album with lots of witchy, mystical instrumentation and lyrics from David Tibet and company. Kurt Vile is back with one of his longest releases, actually his longest release with Bottle It In, an 80-minute folk rock album with some psychedelic twists and beautiful instrumental layers. I'm going to be talking about the new Joji album, Ballads 1. Joji, a.k.a. George Miller, makes his commercial debut with a full-length album. I'm also going to be talking about the latest Greta Van Fleet record and how I don't really care for it. And we are also going to be giving you new track reviews from Rosalia and Carly Rae Jepsen. So this is a a big packed episode. Get ready, strap in, and uh, here we go. Here come the reviews. Ba-bam! And it is time for a review of the new Julia Holter album, Aviary. This is the latest full-length LP from singer-songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, composer, Julia Holter. And while Julia has not yet amassed a mainstream following, this decade she has proven herself to be one of the more creative and consistent voices out there, delivering one album after the next of dreamy, elegant, progressive art pop laced with dense Baroque instrumentation. Some of her past work has dabbled more in ambient and experimental music like 2011's Tragedy. Going even further back than that album reveals even more abstract projects. Then we had the following Ecstasies in 2012, which was a kind of faint exercise in dream pop. Pretty straightforward for the genre, a little underwhelming, though I do admire the album's aesthetic consistency. 2013's Loud City Song is really where Holter first wowed me. This record featured smoother, rounder production, some very smart nods to jazz music through the compositions, the horns, the upright bass. Holter wasn't exactly shy about showing off some of her classical influences on this record, too. Also, her gentle, gorgeous, and intimate vocals on this record are eargasmic. It's like art pop ASMR. Holter's next full-length album, in my opinion, would be her most clearly defined and impressive. I'm not sure if there's a dream pop or an art pop album of this decade that I would put above this. The fancy, opulent instrumentation on this thing, the transcendent atmosphere, Julia Holter's voice as wonderful as ever. This record is luxurious. This record is intoxicating. Listening to it transports me to a magical cloudland where the sun is beaming all the time. And everything that is of this earth just doesn't matter anymore. Except for the track How Long, that track is the devil in disguise. So given Julia's recent artistic winning streak, of course I was excited to listen to Aviary, especially since this record looked like it was going to be her biggest and most ambitious undertaking yet at 15 tracks and 90 minutes of material. And certainly this album does sound larger than any album she's put together so far, right from the start. As the track Turn the Light On presents this cloud of monolithic instrumentation all creating this 
busy cacophony, just to show the listener, I guess, how panoramic these tracks are going to be. I love the sea of heavenly vocals on this track, the tumbling pianos, the scattered drums, strings that are either spinning and flapping through the air like lost birds or just kind of focusing on a single note or a drone like a burning laser. The track not only presents a grand sound, but also Holter's classical influences playing a larger part in her songwriting. My main issue, though, is that compositionally, I feel like this cut leaves a lot to be desired. Mostly because Holter and company conjure this gigantic sound, and then it just sort of evaporates out of nowhere into nothing, and it's over. Without any real sense of satisfying progression or resolution. And I only bring up this issue so early in the review because, in a way, it is a bit of a pattern with multiple tracks here. With Holter leaving some of these songs off, with compositional dead ends and cliffhangers, or stringing tracks out to five or six minutes with a hodgepodge of sections and ideas that don't really segue all that well. Like on the track Chetius, which I'm not even going to pretend I'm pronouncing correctly, but still, phase one of this track is a beautiful classical piece, with beautiful layers of strings and reeds dancing together politely, while also hitting some pretty tense harmonies here and there. In phase two, the instrumental shifts into these totally absurd piano phrasings and wild upright bass leads, Holter's voice placed very high in the mix, getting right there into the microphone, echo-drenched voice, and just saying, joy, 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 joy. I felt like I was listening to a combination of, like, a not-so-good Vaporwave song and uh, a Laurie Anderson spoken word piece. Meanwhile, phase three of this track feels aesthetically like the heavenly art pop that Holter is known for, but the instrumentation is totally deconstructed. Though it's not one of the most cohesive spots on the album, the scattered bed of horns and harps and percussion and Holter's howling lead vocals are pretty beautiful. And that's the thing, even when there isn't a whole lot of clarity to the compositions on this record, aesthetically, it's still super enchanting. And there is something kind of wonderful and mysterious about how impenetrable some of the cuts on this record are. Again, there were moments on this album that reminded me of Laurie Anderson, but without the, the heaping helping of futurism. And instead, we're given an instrumental palette that reminds me more of, like, fairies and magical beings that live in a forest. Personally, I don't really mind a long, sprawling album, but the length does become a primary issue when I'm waiting for your track to gain some kind of momentum or sense of direction or cohesion, but that seems to be far from Holter's true intent on this record much of the time. Aviary does not present the clean and primped songs of her earlier works. The most abstract spots on this album make the most experimental moments on Loud City or Tragedy seem straightforward, because a lot of the material on this thing depends on these winding, impressionistic instrumental performances all coming together into a puzzling sound piece that does have some structure to it, but still, it's, it's very enveloping and immersive and sometimes patience testing, but I would say for the most part, very gratifying. Like on the track Voque Simule, which is this mind-bending vocal piece, there is this amazing, heavy, powerful, overwhelming chant in the second half of the song. With all these vocals layering on top of each other, it's nightmarish, but it also makes me feel like I'm I'm weightless, I'm floating through the air, through a mystical forest, it's also moonlit, fireflies everywhere. So this album can be pretty evocative when it wants to be, and it can be pretty surprising too, as this album is loaded with instrumental and stylistic directions that I would have never 
anticipated from Holter. Like the crying, screaming, relentless read notes on the first half of the song, Every Day is an Emergency. The song really does live up to its title as the first leg of it really does feel tense. Eventually these reads give way to a forlorn vocal and piano passage that delivers some very dark lyrics and instrumentally grows more and more atmospheric and ominous and sour as if it were uh, a harrowing instrumental passage from a Godspeed record. The song Underneath the Moon suddenly breaks into this weird, funky jam. It's like if somebody asked a classical ensemble to recreate like a dance passage from Talking Heads Speaking in Tongues. Meanwhile, the track Le Jou To You features these jaunty piano and drum parts. They're upbeat to the point where they sound ridiculous. They happen right at the midpoint of the song and they sound vaguely post-punky. Holter's singing at this point in the song sounds totally batty and pairs really well with the kind of eccentric sound. The song Another Dream sees Holter singing against a whole sea of different synthesizers. Some are chimey, some are glitchy, some are smooth and droney. The chords and the shape of the sound bed are ever-shifting and the track eventually ends up at like this really heavy apocalyptic finish. Again, it's a moment that compositionally I'm not that enthralled with. I wish maybe was pared down a bit or got to the point a bit faster. But again, it does sound super intriguing. Really the first sign of a truly straightforward song on this entire record maybe comes around the midpoint, the track I Shall Love Too, which feels like a fantastically lavish reinvention of a track that could have been on like the first two Nico albums. Toward the end of this record, we actually see a bit of a reprise of this song with massive vocal layers and drums. It's another moment on the album that gets kind of transcendent with all of these layers of voices on top of each other. I shall love. It's, it's almost like a religious experience. And I do actually think the songwriting on this record does happen to gain a bit more focus after I Shall Love Too. At least enough for Holter's consistently abstract ideas to come off a bit more cohesive and engaging. For example, the track Collegiere, while this song does have uh, a really weird kind of boundaryless like quality to it, it is one of the larger tracks in terms of some of the buildups, some of the crescendos, the payoff. It does have some grand, amazing moments on it, and I would love continually for this track to be just washing over me much more than some of the more meandering cuts on this thing. Look guys, this record is huge. This record is a lot. It's a lot to take in. It's a lot to... <laughs> process. And it's a lot just in terms of its size and its scope. It's a juggernaut. It may not appeal to you immediately, especially if you're looking to grab hold of and completely understand everything that you're listening to right away. If that's what you're demanding of this record, it's, it's going to be a frustrating listen. But again, what I can say is even in its most perplexing moments, this record is gorgeous. This is a record that you can really swim in. I will say though, I do think the album is a tad bloated and there are some tracks on this thing that I don't necessarily think benefit from the average track length of six minutes. Like the closing track, like In Gardens Muteness. One more thing I didn't address all that much in this review are Holter's beautiful and poetic lyrics all over this thing and the multiple languages she delivers them into. The English on this album, the French, the Latin, all of which add to the mystery and the versatility of this record. I did love this album. I do think this is a special album. It took a lot out of me, but I did love this record. If you just have the time and the desire to just totally dive into and sink into the depths of pure beauty that 
is is not working on anyone's schedule, then I highly recommend that you give this thing a listen. It may not be as immediately thrilling, exciting, or emotionally impactful as some of Holter's other recent works, but it's without question one of the most special albums she has delivered to her fans so far. I'm feeling a light to decent eight on this thing. Transition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new Daughters record. You won't get what you want. This is the new comeback album from Providence, Rhode Island band Daughters, who we haven't heard from as far as studio albums go for like almost a decade. Not since the band's 2010 self-titled record, which at the time was supposed to be their swan song, which was a big change of pace from a lot of the noise and math core the band had been dabbling in for the first half of the aughts. Even though I don't find Daughters' first two albums to be incredibly interesting, what was supposed to be their final album over here was easily one of the heaviest and most refreshing noise rock albums to come out in a long time. And not just because of the fat pummeling riffs and percussion, and the tight performances too, but also the bright, shrill, sour, insane guitar tones all over this thing, which to this day still sound crazy. It's like it puts my brain on fire. My brain is on fire. I got fire brain. So considering where we left off with Daughters, I was pretty excited to hear this new album. I was also pretty impressed with teaser tracks like Satan and the Wait, which showed the band going in a darker, subtler direction. It also showed the band stringing their songwriting out to seven minutes, which for Daughters is kind of crazy. Their debut full-length album is 11 minutes in length. It's an album with numerous songs on it and it's 11 minutes. This whole new record is an undertaking in length for Daughters. It's approximately 50 minutes, which is almost twice as long as their last album. Given that, the new sonic territory, the more ambitious song structures, I was pretty excited to hear what this album held for the band. And I'm happy to say this album was not only worth the wait, but it's also far better than its predecessor. Holy crap, holy crap, holy crap, holy crap, holy crap, holy crap, what? is this? I thought this record was gonna be dark and abrasive and strange, for sure, without a doubt. But I had no idea what kind of black hole I would be tumbling down on this album. The torture and demented sounds I would be subject to. The vile displays of auditory abuse. This thing is like all the cacophony of the last record, but with more body, more atmosphere, more versatility, more influences, not just noise rock, but industrial rock and no wave and art punk. It feels like I'm listening to the spastic, explosive brand of rock music that used to permeate the underground in the 2000s, thanks to bands like Daughters, but then it got tossed away into a sewer drain, left to ferment and mutate for eight years, and now it's grown into a 30-story monster comeback to destroy everything in its path! The whole thing starts off with the track City Song, which feels like a heavy industrialized take on a suicide track, or maybe even something Throbbing Gristle would have done back in the day, with these rolling, throbbing, overblown hits of percussion, which are super distorted, clipping. That's paired with some warping, rough synth notes, some deadpan poetry, and these three simple elements by themselves create such a creepy atmosphere. Already so early on the record, the band has set an utterly disturbing tone. I love how weird and off-putting and flat the vocals are. It's like they're kind of difficult to read. They feel so soulless and so aloof. I love the way the band builds up the momentum with extra percussion, the additional eerie ringing tones, and then we get a breakdown of near silence before the band explodes back into this final ugly crescendo. It's like this nuclear bomb of cathartic 
hideousness. The guitar tones at this point in the track are so freakish and deafening and maddening, they make me want to slam my head through a wall. It's like I'm being slowly smothered to death. This track transitions very quickly after the Long Road No Turns, which is an absolutely harrowing song. Features these twangy, nightmare, funhouse, circus, organ-type guitars skipping over these marching tom drums. Again, just a few seconds in, and it already sounds like one of the most messed up things I've heard in 2018. And the band only goes on to make this song sound even more deranged as it progresses. Especially with lyrics like, Everybody climbs up high that falls real far, a little is all it takes, a little is all it takes. I don't know what to say when people come apart. The road is long, the road is dark. The track to me just reads like this internal monologue of snapping, becoming unhinged, being on the verge of a mental break. And this song really builds up some mean tension with the driving bass, the crashing drums, the wee 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 guitar freakouts. Also loving the multiple phases of this song too, the direct delivery, it has me on the edge of my seat, but I'm not sitting on it, I'm standing on it, and there's a noose on my neck. The track Satan in the Weight kicks off like one might expect it to, given the two previous tracks, with spaced out tom drums and grime caked bass and these guitars that are just melting in the mix. Then we get lyrics like, that bastard had a head like matchstick, a face like he'd been sucking concrete through a straw, some faces not even a mother can love, says the spit and spatter of broken glass from above. It's one of many moments on the album where we get the grim and fevered delivery of a Nick Cave, but also the poetic license of a Tom Waits. Eventually this track kind of loses its edgy demeanor and actually blossoms into some legitimately beautiful guitar lines that have a nice sparkly sheen to them. At this point the track becomes super atmospheric, almost like something out of the Twilight Zone. And given the track's mantra of this world is opening up, it feels like I'm slowly being sucked into something. The song, known as the Flammable Man, is a blistering labyrinth of busy guitars and drums. Outside of a few momentary breathers on this cut, it is absolutely relentless. And even though you could say this is one of the more straightforward cuts of the bunch, maybe not quite as experimental as the other songs on here, the band does work in a really nice and interesting stuttering wall of noise in the last leg. There's not a single song on here where Daughters completely foregoes the sound play. It's always consistent, it's present, it's on point. We are left off again with another haunting mantra on this track, is something burning here or is it me? The Lord song is a horrifying no-wave rager with whooping twisted guitars that sounds like something out of a battle song, but from hell. Meanwhile, the glacial walls of dissonance we get at another point in the song sound like something out of the most sickening murder scene in movie history. The song Less Sex is a much needed cooldown point on this album. It's almost Trent Reznor-ish with its very deadpan, intimate lead vocals, its synthetic drums, its industrial atmosphere. There's a little bass groove in there, some sinister walls of noise at various points of the cut. Also, the forlorn vocal leads with the structure of the track too. It almost reads like uh, kind of a blues song. Maybe even something some Zeal and Ardor fans would appreciate. Not to mention some Fetus, or maybe a little This Heat. Either way, the really sharp, ringing guitar tones that play throughout many points of this album. On this particular track, they actually gain a very beautiful, dark sense of harmony. Not nearly as off-putting or as horrifying as they sound on many other cuts here. It's actually gorgeous. The song Daughter carries a lot of the mellow energy of the previous track, with a very simple bass groove and a drum beat that sounds almost 
bossa nova-ish, but darkened up a little bit. Given all the material up to this point on the album, I think the first leg of this track, aside from the swarm of detuned guitar tones, is a little unsuspecting. But then the band breaks loose in the second half into these glorious, glamorous, gothic harmonies that are uh, fantastic. It makes me want to wear black for the rest of my life! The song The Reason They Hate Me is maybe the most straightforward rock tune on the entire record, not only in terms of groove, but it's verse, chorus, verse, chorus, instrumental bridge, refrain on the outro. It is one of the catchiest and most direct moments on the entire album, with its driving bass and the manic rants coming out of the vocals. Also, the guitars on this thing sound like the dissonant shots of strings from the Psycho soundtrack, but on steroids. Especially on the hook, where they literally go It's like I'm being stabbed, but with a sound. Ocean Song offers a change of pace in that it is a story song, hinged upon the dejected shouting of frontman Alexis Marshall. The track lyrically is a surreal description of a man coming home and being overcome by some great terror. He is hit with this desire to run, just run as fast as he can, away from his house, I guess away from his life. The lyricism is fantastic, I, I would even say literary. His shoes come off his feet and shadow him for several yards, ghosts of what he was, desperate to keep up until gone, now the road punching upward into his soft, naked feet. The band hits the listener with yet another 20-story tall wall of sour guitars, which yeah, it's obviously happened a lot of times up until this point on the album, but this is one of the <laughs> nastiest examples of it so far. It actually reaches kind of a deafening fever pitch with some really tense drum fills and some acoustic guitar worked in there too. It really does kind of give you the feeling of, of being chased. This song kind of turned on my fight or flight reflexes. The track eventually coasts out on this meditative repetition of these riffs and drums it's almost a little Swans-ish. It's a very powerful ending, but believe it or not, the band actually saves the best for last with the song Guest House, which at this point for me on this record, I'm feeling crazy because I'm, I'm playing a numbers game in my head and I'm thinking everything up until this point has been so watertight. What are the chances this band is just gonna stick the landing here? I don't know what the chances were, but I guess they were in Daughter's favor because this ending, what do I even say about this ending? I'm honestly out of words because I... <laughs> it's, it's so overpowering. This track is one of the fuggliest things I've ever heard. The relentless guitars on this thing are terrifying. And Marshall screams of, LET ME IN! LET ME IN! The fear and agony in his voice on this track is palpable. And then the madness of this song is given this grandiose presentation with what sounds like uh, some really beautiful and rich horns and strings. It's like orchestral size. I think maybe these additions might be synthetic in some way, shape, or form, but either way, uh, they coast out beautifully, especially when the guitars and drums kind of disintegrate to let that orchestral instrumentation uh, just kind of bring this record to a close. It's like the calm after one of the most tumultuous musical storms I've been subjected to this decade. And not just tumultuous, because I've heard a number of very noisy, chaotic albums this year and many years up until this point, but this record is really visceral, like you really get into it physically. It's not just this wall of noise that you just stand on the outside of and doesn't really have any kind of emotional baggage to it. This is a physical album, and on top of that, this record is so terrifying. Amazing finish, super consistent, but terrifying sound. What a terrifying album. 
What a terrifying album. And like a lot of great horror movies, I feel like this album almost comes to the conclusion that we are the monster. The monster comes from within. Because all the horrible and scary things that are said in the lyrics on this record mostly seem to be rooted into this internal darkness that one can't really shake. This record is the horror of losing control and becoming that monster you work every day so hard not to be. And I feel like your ability to deal with that and, and tolerate uh, <laughs> such such ugly sounds is is going to be deeply connected to whether or not uh, this album actually even appeals to you. I'm feeling a strong nine to a ten on this thing. Hell yes to this album. Hell yes. <laughs> Before we get into the next review, I want to give a shout out to one of our sponsors in this podcast, the good people over at Ridge Wallet. Hit up the link ridgewallet.com slash Fantano and use promo code Fantano and get yourself a nice, new, beautiful, metal-plated, minimalist wallet. Replace that old, disgusting, bulky leather wallet that you got there. Minimize all that bulk in that wallet that you have. Put your cards in a sleek, nice casing. Money clip that money into a nice money clip and slip that crap into your front pocket instead of it taking up so much real estate on your butt. So, uh, yeah, got mine. Rocking it for a few months now. Love it. Would love for you guys to have the same positive experience as well. So, again, RidgeWallet.com slash Fantano. Promo code Fantano, 10% off. Here's the next review. And it's time for a review of the new Current 93 album, The Light is Leaving Us All. This is the latest full-length album from UK neo-folk godfathers, Current 93, which is a musical project founded in the 80s with like a, a bajillion albums, founded by poet and frontman David Tibet, who got his start in the UK music scene, palling around and collaborating with some of the best and brightest coming out of the industrial music revolution onset by bands like Throbbing Gristle, Psychic TV, Nurse with Wound. Now, given that, it would only make sense that David Tibet's early work under the current 93 name would have kind of an industrial tone to it, like on Dog's Blood Rising or Nature Unveiled. But slowly, current 93 would eventually transition away from a lot of these industrial and ambient atmospheres and evolve into a sound that was more akin to English folk music. Keep in mind that Tibet has been the only creative constant in current 93 from start to finish, and each sonic metamorphosis the band has undergone has sort of come off the back of a change in personnel, at least to some degree. That being said though, by the early 90s, Tibetan company had fully developed this dark and poetic strain of folk music with a medieval twist and a theatrical edge. Most notably on albums like Thunder Perfect Mind, Of Ruin or Some Blazing Star, and All the Pretty Little Horses. Albums that feature not just winding, gorgeous, mystical folk guitars, but also violins, psychedelic drones, pianos, woodwinds, bells, hand percussion. But easily the most standout thing of these records and the current 93 discography in general is David Tibet himself. The dude is a showstopper. And not just because of his totally batty and campy delivery style. He sounds like a wild-ass NPC from an old English RPG where you're like spelunking caves and pillaging like weird thief coves and learning some boss ass spells. Again, it's not just his delivery that makes David Tibet so interesting, but also his lyrics. Laced with occultism, paganism, really religion and spirituality of all stripes, mysticism, esoteric historical figures, philosophy, mortality, also cats. <laughs> 
And since the 90s, Current 93 have worked a lot of other genres and sounds into their folky repertoire. Whether that be noise rock, or hymns, or classical music, I recommend you check out the album Soft Black Stars, which sees David Tibet over a lot of lovely pianos. Or the band's last proper album in 2014, which sees them embracing really everything but the kitchen sink. An album that at the time flew totally over my head, but now that I have a better grip of their back catalog, I now appreciate just how weird of a left hook this record was for them. So Current 93 has undergone a lot of changes over the years, as most groups who have been putting out music for about four decades do. But for most of it, the band's arcane tendencies and Tibet's bold poetry have remained at the center of whatever they're doing. Now, 2018 so far has been a pretty busy year for Current 93, as Tibet has released a spoken word sound collage piece. He also put out a collaborative record with the Italian experimental rock, metal, and jazz band Zoo, easily one of the most instrumentally ambitious records yet to be attached to Current 93. And now we have this, The Light Is Leaving Us All, a record that by the standards of Current 93's recent output is kind of scaling things back. Returning to the more organic and kind of medieval folk instrumentation that put the band on the map. But it's not just an old school or a throwback Current 93 album, as there are some unique characteristics to this record that kind of make it stand out. For one, this is easily one of the most fluid and cohesive records in the Current 93 discography, as many of the tracks on this thing seamlessly flow into one another, and there are some really clear lyrical themes that pull the entire record together, whether it be witches or birds, birds birds singing, birds leaving, field recordings of birds. Also, the title of this album is kind of a lyrical mantra that pulls us through numerous tracks on this thing too, as David Tibet waxes poetic on things like loss and changes and cycles of various sorts, light to dark, shifting seasons. It's like he's spinning a series of enchanting vignettes around a central but cryptic set of themes, in front of a series of instrumental backdrops of varying intensities, whether it be the plucky gentle string melodies intertwining on The Policeman is Dead, or the frigid electric piano arpeggios on Bright Dead Star, which come off super forlorn, heart-wrenching. I also love the guitar and xylophone combo, I think it's a xylophone, on 30 Red Houses. These curious little melodies dancing around each other are matched with one of the most sinister vocal deliveries that David Tibet brings on the entire record. Then there's A Thousand Witches, which features this very sparse funeral march percussion, some chilling woodwinds and rich piano. There are also some stunning and swelling walls of sound on this thing too, whether it be noisy and dissonant like on the very surreal The Postman is Singing, which features some horns and strings and raw guitar chords, or with The Kettles On, which has some sour layers of fluttering strings. There are a few instrumentals here that meander a bit and don't progress all that much, but even on the tracks where this happens, it's not all that bad, as it still contributes to this album's gorgeous aesthetic and strong sense of place. There is a wonderful sense of immersion to the sound and the style of this album, as it makes me feel like I'm transported to another place, another time. However, I will say the consistent lyrical themes of this record I do think are a bit of a double-edged sword. It doesn't come off as unpredictable or as alien as some of the wordplay and 
topics that David has presented on previous releases, which could be really good for newcomers. Occasionally, David might even drop some lyrical food for thought, too. And if a man blinds a man, his eye is blinded. If a man breaks the bone of another man, his bone is broken. If a man knocks out the tooth of another man, his tooth is knocked out. Which I kind of read as a statement on the futility of violence as a means to an end. Generally, Tibet's words on this album are pretty evocative. However, I did find after multiple listens to this album, some of the lyrical themes do grow a little stale and I start getting some deja vu. In a way, I do prefer how puzzling and obtuse some of his lyricism was on previous efforts. I think a slightly larger instrumental presentation would have been a nice touch on this record too, as there are a handful of cuts on here that are lovely but meander a little bit musically. Bench in the Fetch, Your Future Cartoon, and Policeman is Dead to a Degree. Those are really my biggest complaints with this album though. It's a lovely record. Lovely, endearing, strange, and pretty unique too. Maybe not in the grander current 93 discography, but still, after all these years, there are so few groups out there that are doing exactly what David Tibet and company are doing, which obviously contributes to current 93's obscurity, but simultaneously, it's part of the reason they have such a passionate fan base to begin with. Because where the hell else are you getting this? I'm feeling a strong 7 to a light 8 on this thing, Tran. Zition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new Kurt Vile album, Bottle It In. This is the latest album for Matador Records from Kurt Vileman. No, that's, that's not his name, I'm just kidding. He is a singer-songwriter and essentially a veteran of the indie scene at this point, as I can remember back when the late 2000s blogosphere was in full swing and Kurt was turning heads with a variety of MP3s and albums like Constant Hitmaker and Childish Prodigy. He kind of made a name for himself in the trendy ocean of lo-fi musicians with a more psychedelic and folky sound. And Matador Records' early investment in his music paid off heavily when he dropped his breakout record Smoke Ring for My Halo. An album that at the time resonated much more with other indie fans than it did with me. I liked a lot of the trippy and hazy walls of sound that this album offered, but I found a lot of the songwriting underneath this to be utterly average. But over the years, Kurt's songwriting did mature a little bit in terms of structure and lyricism, and kind of reached a peak in 2013 on his album Waking on a Pretty Days. Still my favorite record of his so far, hands down. A record loaded with these blissful, hazy day tunes, with gently psychedelic instrumentation and lyrics that offer just a little bit more food for thought. Kurt Vile's very weird, drawling singing voice started to gain some real swagger. His influences began began to really shine too, whether it be Neil Young or Tom Petty or Willie Nelson or a lick of Krautrock. However, Kurt stripped a lot of the psychedelic and layered instrumentation back on his last full-length album, Believe I'm Going Down, to deliver his songs in, I guess, a more raw format. And while there were some great standouts on this album, like Pretty Pimpin' and I'm an Outlaw, for the most part, the humdrum lyrics and chord progressions didn't really stand up with this more naked view, especially on the more mellow cuts here. Bottle It In, however, is another change of pace. It sees Kurt bringing more instrumentation back in, but not going so crazy with the effects that it becomes super trippy or surreal. It's at a tasteful midpoint. It sounds more mature like his last record, but still should appeal to fans who have always liked the more ethereal qualities of his albums. It is also his longest record yet at about an hour and 20 minutes. Stylistically, Kurt is still very much in the 
folk rock, Americana, acoustic ballad wheelhouse, but occasionally you might catch a bit more banjo or some xylophone or even some synthesizers. And I think occasionally on this album, Kurt does step it up a little bit vocally and lyrically. Right from the opening track on this thing, Loading Zones, which is a strong opening for this album and a bittersweet piece of folk rock with a really strong sense of place as Kurt goes on to describe his dirty little town, the loading zones, being there and getting his shopping done, and then he's having these weird mayoral fantasies. I also like the lush rush of beautiful instrumentation toward the back end of the track, the shouted refrain, I park for free, free! The next track sees Kurt embarking yet again on one of these kind of spacey rock tunes with a driving set of drums. A lot of speed on this song. It's tight. It's driving. There's a lot of angular guitar melodies. Feels like the remnants of Kurt's former band, the War on Drugs, working itself into his music yet again. I also love how rich and jangly the guitars all over this track are. Also, Kurt's voice really pops out of the mix on this cut, too. His quirky personality really shines through. These songs, One Trick Ponies, and especially Rollin' With The Flow showcase some of Kurt's best songwriting yet. Rollin' With The Flow is a bona fide old-school country tune, with a beautiful, tried, and true chord progression. Some really high-gloss guitar leads, and the strums on the acoustics are gorgeous. They are crunchy. They just, they're springy, yet defined. It's, it's lovely. I love the lyrics on this track, too, about aging, his friends kind of moving on, and living their own lives. Meanwhile, he's just there doing his own thing, Rolling with the flow. I keep on rolling with the flow. God, I hate myself. Then there's the track Check Baby, which features this gurgling bass, a really groovy, low-down beat. It's like a mix of folk, bar band rock and roll, but industrial too. Kurt's swagger on the song is something to behold and the lyrics are borderline badass. Amphetamine, amphetamine, you know what I mean, she's got a real kick to her. Some real Velvet Underground shit. Bass Ackwards is a song on the album where Kurt kind of embarks on this slice of life songwriting. His diatribe reads like a diary. It's like he's kind of giving you a day of his life over some trippy reversed instrumentation. He's on a radio show with a friend, he's doing a bunch of other things too but all the thoughts kind of string together coherently. I'm slightly reminded of Sun Kill Moon and Mark Kozlek's recent work, but I feel like the difference between what Mark is doing on his tracks and what Kurt is doing here is, I guess, the difference between listening to a book on tape and, like, a relaxation cassette. Basically, folk rock ASMR. Also keep in mind that this track is one of three 10-minute cuts on the album. And if Kurt's going to be using these three tracks to add this much runtime to the album, they've all got to be essential, right? Unfortunately, these longer songs, the other two longer songs, are where I think the album falters the most. The title track, Bottle It In, really should have bottled it in. I get that the point of the song is to be as chill as possible, but it's just so comatose. The instrumental becomes so redundant, tedious, and lifeless, I might as well just be listening to some kind of mechanical noise on an endless loop. And it's not exactly like Kurt's vocals on top really steal the show. There's lots of dead air, Lots of weird, awkward crooning. It's not exactly like the song progresses all that much across its 10-minute runtime either. Though, as Kurt says on One Trick Ponies, I guess he does like repetition. Lyrically, I do like the sentiment of the song about just kind of being afraid of being hurt by a significant other and you're afraid to kind of reveal yourself or let your intent or feelings be known. But I feel like this message would go over so much better and, and hit so much harder 
had it been packaged into a more succinct song, something as instrumentally gorgeous and flavorful as Rollin' With The Flow. And again, even Bass Ackwards doesn't go over that bad because the groove is great, Kurt vocally is much more captivating. The equally long ending track, Skinny Mini, suffers from a lot of the same issues, namely mind-numbing repetition. Though I do applaud how Kurt approached this track instrumentally, the barely legible minimalist percussion, that really stark singular guitar line, Kurt drawling all over the track with some effects that makes his voice sound like he's kind of calling out over a loudspeaker. Although, I don't even want to get into the lyrics. I want to give me a kiss, girl. I want to wow. Would you look at that? I want to damn. She sure is fine. I want to damn. She just blew my mind. And it's not just the lengthier tracks on this album that are kind of weighing this album down. It's a lot of the material in the last leg, like on the song Mutinies and Come Again, both tracks that drum up some really cool walls of sound. But the tunes are just okay, not nearly as catchy or as sweet as many that came in the first half of the record, though I do like some of the banjo licks and Kurt's lyrical musings about planets and bones and modern technology. The song Cold Was the Wind is another decent track on the album, but for the most part it's ruined by all of these really gimmicky sound effects that it's wrapped in, namely some weird scratchy turntable noises that are just really unnecessary. In a lot of respects, I think this record is kind of an improvement on the last record. I mean, the instrumentation and the production is lush and full and fantastic. This album also features some of Kurt's best material to date, but unfortunately the entire album is bogged down by a lot of cuts that really could have been cut. Either cut entirely or just cut down to a more respectable length, as dragging these songs out to 10 minutes doesn't really add to their appeal. This is truly an album that I think would have been better off with less. I'm feeling a decent too strong six on this thing, Tran. Zition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the brand new Joji album, Ballads One. This is the debut full-length commercial album of YouTube meme lord gone alternative R&B superstar Joji, aka George Miller, one of the biggest names on the 88 Rising label, a status he rocketed to last year when he dropped his In Tongues EP, a little project that carried an admirably moody vibe, but was severely lacking with its mostly nondescript vocal performances and very rudimentary production. Even though there were some parts of this EP that I liked, for the most part it was pretty bland and unmemorable. So as far as this new album goes, I was kind of hoping that Joji would bring a huge improvement on all fronts or else I would be in for yet another snoozer. And for a second it felt like we were going to get a truly exciting album from the smell of some of the teaser tracks to this thing, namely the single Slow Dancing in the Dark. Easily one of Joji's most fully realized songs yet, far better than anything he had put out up until that point in terms of lyricism, in terms of vocal performance. Also the sound and the instrumental of this thing, I love the dreamy arpeggios colored all over this track, very smooth bass as well, the vocal lines on this cut have kind of a vintage feel, explosive hook as well with a 
wall of very bright ringing synthesizers. The track was sad and romantic and captivating and held way more emotion than anything on that EP. So that single was a really good start and now that I'm hearing the entire album, there are some things that I like about it. I love Ballads 1's very simple lo-fi recording style, even if it is a bit of a double-edged sword on some tracks. For the most part, this record's very rough aesthetic adds to how sad and moody it is. I think it gives a lot of the songs on this thing kind of an edge and a bit of personality, too. Occasionally, that lo-fi edge is oddly missing, mostly on the track Test Drive, which in my opinion, mostly just sounds like a lazy Post Malone ripoff. Or it can occasionally go overboard, like on the opening track, Attention, which in the middle of the song features these huge, rumbling, clipping, overblown bass notes that suck up the mix so hard that the vocals basically become distorted, fuzzed out, and unintelligible. I appreciate the attempt at doing something a little experimental and a little weird here. Lord knows there are tons of weird lo-fi and distorted songs and albums that I enjoy quite a bit, but I would not cite this song as an example of it being done well. Most of the time, the lo-fi aesthetic of the production on this thing reaches a healthy middle ground. Like on the song Wanted You, which features these thuddy kick drums and kind of scattered, dirty, filthy hi-hats, some sunburnt guitars wailing out, definitely makes the track sound woozy and overwhelming and bittersweet. Then there's the track Can't Get Over You, which features Clams Casino, a song that features a gentle but very funky beat with a super miniature kick and snare pattern, some slick bass and what sounds like some very plucky keyboard notes hard panned into each channel. It's endearing. It's cute. It's kind of sweet. And then there's the track Why Am I Still in LA, which at the midpoint features this rush of distorted guitars and some pretty heavy bass. Some driving drums, too. Then on the verses, we get these lonely glockenspiel notes. Honestly, it almost sounds like something out of an old Mount Erie song. So there are elements of this album that do remind me of lo-fi indie, and then there are elements of it that remind me of similarly moody alternative R&B artists that also have rough productions surrounding their tracks, How to Dress Well or Spooky Black slash Corbin. I think the sound that George is shooting for on this new record, though, is, is much more mesmerizing, almost to the point where it feels like a narcotic. And this consistently sad and moody and kind of druggy vibe is really the best thing that this album has going for it, because it's still a very flawed project. Not only because it has numerous tracks that don't really develop all that far and duck out prematurely, to the point where they basically feel like filler, talking about Can't Get Over You, which is just a minute and change, or the track Xanax, or the track R.I.P. with Trippy Red, which fades out prematurely. And the song L.A. 2, even though this track is not one of the shortest on the entire album, it is pretty odd that it hits this really distorted, intense crescendo point in the middle of the cut, and then it just kind of coasts out into oblivion after that as if it doesn't really know where to go next. Believe me, there are other examples of much more coherent songwriting on this record. And occasionally, even when Joji does try to string these songs out into a more satisfying length, he has to get there by padding the track out in a really weird or awkward way. Like on the closing track of this thing, which features two completely uncomplimentary pieces of music faded into one another in this really jarring, unpleasant way. And even though this album does feature some vocal improvements on Joji's part, the vocals still do leave a little bit to be desired, as they range from totally forgettable, like on the track Yeah Right, or off-key and awkward, like some of the really god-awful auto-tuned background vocal riffing on the closing track. Some of the vocal layers on the track Wanted You are a total mess too. Thankfully, the really odd beat on this track and the song is so sharp that it kind of balances it out. Still, it does not change that all the wee 
and uh, uh, vocal harmonies, I guess you could call them, that are really slurred throughout the track, they don't really come together all that well. They're terribly unflattering, even if I do like the raw display of emotion that Joji brings here. I also have a really odd attraction to the track No Fun. I like the bouncy beat, the simple lonesome message of the song is cute too. The lyrics might be incredibly reductive and maybe the rhyme scheme isn't that amazing, but it's still incredibly catchy and I love how that pre-chorus moment where Joji is singing and I keep with myself, don't fuck with no one else. It sounds almost like something out of a J-pop song. This thing is 12 tracks, 35 minutes, doesn't really overstay its welcome. I like the vibe, I like the aesthetic, but overall I'm pretty on the fence with it. Again, I like the sound, I like the aesthetic, I like most of the instrumentals, some of the songs. Vocals still remain to be an Achilles heel for Joji, unfortunately, and the writing can be really hit or miss, but I do like some of the sonic risks that he took on this record. I can definitely say that this album, in comparison with his EP, uh, was a little more interesting, certainly more adventurous. Seems like he's coming into his own a bit more artistically, even if there are some cuts on here that feel very dime a dozen and trendy. This thing is pleasant, it's pretty, it's somber, but there's not a whole lot to dig into beyond the intoxicating energy that it radiates when you're playing it. Feeling a strong five to a light six on this thing. The next review is coming up, but first let me shout out turntablelab.com. That is turntablelab.com. They are your one-stop online shop for all sorts of colorful pressings of records that I've covered on the channel. Also, audiophile gear, turntable speakers, wires, everything. The holidays are coming up treat yourself, get yourself that record player that you wanted, those speakers that you wanted, that splatter colored vinyl that you've been looking forward to or you've been kind of saving up money for, for that artist or album that you love. Hit up again, turntablelab.com slash the needle drop. That is turntablelab.com slash the needle drop. And you get a nice, clean, convenient shopping experience and we get kickback from it. Supports the podcast, supports the segment. And uh, yeah, that's it. All right, guys, let's get into the next review. This new Greta Van Fleet album, it's not good. The brand new full-length album from Michigan band Greta Van Fleet. Given my feelings on the band's previous material and my negative takes on nearly every track that has been released prior to the drop of this album, along with some very notable and negative reviews this album has received since it was put out, you might have seen this video coming. But I have a feeling that this is going to be a very different not good because Greta Van Fleet is a unique band in a unique situation. This is not like most videos in this series where I will just totally rip on an album because the production is garbage, the singing is some of the worst that I've heard this year, and the instrumentals or the performances are just Ah. That is actually very much the opposite for Greta Van Fleet. When it comes to musicianship, I'm not going to say this album is the moon and the stars or anything, but these guys are very capable. They play pretty freaking well. And the production is actually pretty tasteful by modern rock standards. It's nowhere near as squeaky clean and soulless as what you might find on like a... Imagine Dragons album. There is a nice human touch. It does have a cool organic quality to it, even if sometimes it does come off slightly bland. So yeah, the production, musicianship, the performances, they're not really all that bad. Sitting down and listening through to this entire album, while there are a few duds in the track list, it's actually pretty pleasant, 
not uh, excruciating by any stretch of the imagination. But the headache that Greta Van Fleet gives me is <laughs> more of a contextual one. Now, if you didn't know up until this point, Greta Van Fleet is pretty much a hard rock band, mixing groovy bass and drums with wild guitar rips and leads and soaring bluesy vocals. Very much a 70s throwback and a quality one at that in that there is a lot of attention to style and detail. But Greta Van Fleet and this album are not just merely some 70s hard rock pastiche. The ideas and the sounds and the influences behind the music on this album are so dead specific you could really whittle Greta Van Fleet's, uh, pretty much their entire sound down to one band, and that's Led Zeppelin. I mean, of course, there are some elements of songwriting and musicianship where they fall painfully short, but honest to God, there were deep cuts on this thing that if you told me they were a long lost Led Zeppelin B-side, I might just believe you. The imitation literally goes that far. I mean, the imitation went too far on the band's previous release already. And it seems like with the years that they've had to hone their sound and the increase in production quality, they have only spent this time, this effort, this money in emulating Led Zeppelin's sound further, only becoming even greater of a ripoff. But my major issue with this record does not merely come down to the fact that one band that's new is influenced by another band that's old. Because as you know, there are dozens of reviews I pop out every year, many of them being positive, where there's a very clear influence being worn on the sleeve of that artist for another one that I'm pretty familiar with as well. Merely being influenced by another artist is not a sin, especially if we're talking about the case of Led Zeppelin, because few artists stole, robbed, and cheated their way to the top like Led Zeppelin did. As there are numerous tracks in the band's catalog where certain pieces, musical ideas, or entire songs are just blatant ripoffs of other shit. So it's not merely the stealing, the borrowing, or even the plagiarism of a particular sound or idea or aesthetic that really kind of gets in my craw over this record. Because in the creative process of any kind of art, you're always going to be influenced by something, even inadvertently, as the creative process doesn't happen in a vacuum. But instead of making something that's essentially an amalgamation of all the ideas and experiences from each respective member in Greta Van Fleet, the band has decided to base their creative output on the vision of a single music act, and again, that's Led Zeppelin. There are maybe a few parts on this album where a guitar lick or uh, a vocal riff might sound a little bit like Getty Lee or a little bit like, uh, like an Aerosmith track, but for the most part, this album just sounds like a bunch of Led Zeppelin cuts to the point where Greta Van Fleet is a cover band but without the covers, as the quality of the songs on this record are okay but weren't nearly good enough to make the cut of great Led Zeppelin albums like Three and Four and Physical Graffiti. There's nothing on this album that goes toe to toe with A Black Dog or A Stairway to Heaven or even a Communication Breakdown in terms of performance, musicianship, wild energy. So the band's own mission to emulate this sound in a way has failed as the end result here doesn't really entice me to listen to the album over again, but rather, it just feels like I'm pre-gaming to go listen to an actual Led Zeppelin album because whenever I put this on, that's pretty much what I'm in the mood to do. Despite, again, the musicianship on this thing not being all that bad, and I do find it pretty impressive that the lead singer on here has literally mapped out Robert Plant's whole vocal range 
in his vocal cords, from his strained, raspy, and passionate highs to his kind of saucy and sultry lower registers. But even sounding exactly like another huge band and falling short on a quality level isn't even the biggest annoyance that I have with this record. And it has nothing to do with, oh, now that rock and roll used to be about rebelling against your parents, and now with this record it's about pleasing your parents. It's not really about that either. My biggest annoyance with this album is that conceptually, it spits in the face of artistic evolution. Because again, while Led Zeppelin, some of the biggest thieves in rock music, they at least had the foresight and the smarts to cover their tracks, and at least put some sort of twist on what it is they were ripping off. Without at least that baseline level of minimal effort to recontextualize what they were borrowing, you wouldn't have Led Zeppelin. Even though originality is not the be-all, end-all of great music, and a record that is purely original and separate from any and all contexts and musical cultures and movements that we are currently familiar with would most likely turn off most listeners. The struggle to be original and the struggle to stand out is what pushes music as an art form forward. Because there are plenty of genres and musical movements over the years that we could name that have essentially become cultural dead ends, red herrings, or just completely died out, as dead as something can be in the internet age. Because it failed to evolve. It failed to progress forward. It failed to challenge the listener, and it failed to engage a new generation of listeners on their terms with something different. So even though presenting new ideas or sounding unlike anything else out there does not guarantee you an audience or a great album, without all of us, or at least most of us, attempting to, to attain that, there's literally no reason to listen to any new music ever again. Because we would literally be in a situation where it's just all been done before. Because the unoriginality of this band and this record is deafening and it's outright shocking. And again, this has nothing to do with borrowing directly from Led Zeppelin. I mean, I enjoy for the most part that Rival Sons record, Pressure in Time. And there are tons of tracks on that album that sound pretty much like Led Zeppelin tracks. However, I would never mistake those songs for a Led Zeppelin song or a Led Zeppelin recording. Just as I would never mistake an Ariel Pink song for an R. Stevie Moore song. Just as I would never mistake a Kurt Vile song for a Neil Young song. And just as I would never mistake an Earl song for an MF Doom song. Again, it's not similarity and influence that's necessarily a bad thing here. Even to the degree that Greta Van Fleet takes it because, hey, you know, cover bands can be pretty entertaining. But I would never buy a cover band's album or ponder the artistic intent of what they're doing beyond that they're just here to lightly entertain people while they're getting a hit of nostalgia and just kind of drinking the night away. The problem with this album is that it openly poo-poos the guiding artistic principles of recontextualization, change, reappropriation, as this band has chosen to work from one of the greatest rubrics in rock history and have literally put no twist on it whatsoever outside of slightly more subpar musicianship and songwriting. Maybe some of you feel like I'm overreacting here, but I truly do find this band's unashamed coattail riding on another artist's creative journey uh, it, to be pretty aggravating, especially since the final result pales in comparison to the original and isn't really that interesting. This Greta Van Fleet album 
It's not good. Hey, buddy, did you hear the news? It's track reviews. And it's time for a track review of the brand new Rosalia song, Dimi Nombre. Now, this is from her forthcoming record. It's dropping November 2nd via Sony Music Entertainment. If you guys remember, her last full-length album, Los Angeles, was one of my favorite records of last year. Beautiful mix of contemporary folk and flamenco. Uh, A lot of these tracks kind of being updated, changed around a little bit. Uh, But really, the most stunning thing about this record is Rosalia's voice. She has a powerful, uh, wonderful gorgeous voice with incredible range, uh, which is mostly why I have been psyched to hear another album from her so quickly. She has seen fit to drop three teaser tracks from this record so far. We are most likely not going to get another one since this album, again, is coming out on November 2nd, so just around the corner. And the songs so far, while I have enjoyed them, they have forecasted a very different record from Los Angeles. Uh, Looking like this thing is just... Yeah, just 11 songs, 30 minutes, a handful of cuts on here that are on the shorter side, like, uh, you know, like transitional moments or something, but doesn't look like a super long record or anything, which is, which is fine. Uh, That's completely fine. I I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that, again, the the teaser tracks of this record have been forecasting uh, more lush and more layered instrumentation. Uh, some other genres kind of flying in, not nearly as stripped back and as simple as uh, the material presented on her last album, which is fine because I've enjoyed, again, the material that she's been teasing so far, especially Malamente. So looking forward to hearing this new track, looking forward to seeing potentially her growing into a newer, fresher, more widely accessible sound, but hopefully still sticking true to her folk roots and, and continuing to showcase just how great her voice is, which, again, despite uh, my and many other publications taking some pretty positive reviews uh, of her album and throwing them up onto the internet, uh, it seems like it's still something that a lot of people haven't been fully appreciating, just how great her voice is. But again, hopefully that's showcased on this new track. Let's give it a shot. Dimi nombre. Ba-bam! Okay. That's pretty nice. I don't know if it's my favorite single that she's dropped so far, my favorite teaser track that she's dropped so far, but it's pretty great. And I I like this track because I think it gives me an opportunity to talk maybe the most about just the instrumental and the aesthetic progression that Rosalia has taken since her last record. As I've said before, she's really kind of finding a lot of creative ways of taking a lot of these styles of music that have obviously influenced her up until this point, but breaking them down in such a way to where they're really functioning in more of a pop space. The hand claps all over this thing, the kick drums, really the percussion on this track, it sounds like it's assembled like a Western pop song or a hip hop beat or something. You know, it doesn't necessarily have a hip hop groove to it, but it just sounds like a modern piece of hip hop production with how uh, a lot of it's being assembled fundamentally speaking. Um, On top of that, you have these really 
reverb drenched, but not washed out guitars that are gorgeous. They're heavenly. They're beautiful. Rosalia's vocals on top of the track are wonderful as well. She she occasionally will hit the mix, like around the point of the hook, with these yali, 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 <laughs> lead vocals where she reaches into her upper register and they'll throw a little auto-tune on her voice for just a touch of effect or sound. Obviously, she's hitting the note she's supposed to hit, but get that to, to get that weird little electronic warble out of her voice, uh, they just sort of throw that robotic auto-tune sound on there. It adds a bit of texture, adds a bit of flavor. And again, despite all of these newer, more modern, contemporary bells and whistles, uh, this still sounds very old world. It sounds very rootsy. It sounds very tasteful and very rustic. It's not like she's uh, like delivering this really basic flamenco song over this like huge wubby dubstepy banger beat or anything like that. It's it's not like I'm listening to uh, 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 a, a really bad reappropriation of flamenco music into like an EDM instrumental or something like that. Uh, again, it's sort of built from the ground up like a pop tune uh, in such a way where I think it will appeal to a pop audience, but it still has those wonderful, gorgeous flamenco flavors and Rosalia's voice still rings through really true. I wish the groove and the fluidity of the track was a bit more free. It does feel super locked into those clap loops and kicks. It's just a bit more quantized. I sort of loved how, again, fluid and intimate uh, a lot of the material from her last full-length album was. Um, you know, in comparison to this, I do maybe prefer that intimacy a little bit more, but still, the vocal lines on this thing are great. The guitars are fantastic. The production is really slick and tasteful and gorgeous and luscious. Um, if I didn't already compliment the tune, I like the tune quite a bit as well. And I thought that the use of auto-tune on this track as well was really nice too. It was really smart. So overall, I'm liking this quite a bit. And the track came in at a pretty trim two minutes and 42 seconds and didn't necessarily feel like I had lost out on anything or that it ducked out early. It had a good, nice structure with a lot going on throughout the track so that, you know, it felt pretty satisfying by the time it decided to end. You know, there's two minutes and 42 seconds where you're basically deciding to do nothing and you're killing time and you haven't really delivered much to the audience. And then there's a really packed, uh, very meticulously assembled two minutes and 42 seconds that is engaging for every second across the track. And this is definitely an example of that. So really digging it, enjoying it. Uh, maybe not as catchy or as hard hitting as a tune right away as Malamente, uh, but still thought it was great. Dimi nombre, definitely um, another reason to look forward to this new album. The Canadian pop princess, Carly Rae Jepsen. She is back. Brand new single. Following up not only her pretty great 2015 album Emotion, which saw her, of course, delivering some very contemporary and smart pop production, but also mixing that with like some 80s synth pop for a very tasteful, um, somewhat nostalgic sound. She followed that up with her 2016 Emotion B-side mini record, which in my opinion was every bit as good as Emotion. Uh, really digging the quality of songwriting and lyricism she's been putting out lately. I've been reading some interesting stuff over the past year just about how all of her lyrics kind of come together into almost a uniform theme of 
sort of not being able to get the guy essentially and uh, uh, always being in this state of unrequited love and it seems almost as if we are still stuck in that theme with uh, this new song over here party party for one uh, as as there's no one else that she's partying with uh, either in the little the, the literal sense or the romantic sense but I digress uh, let's get into the track review let's uh, see what this song is all about let's give it a shot here we go carly ray jepson party for one ba-bam okay carly ray jepson party for one back on her beat this is a pretty sleek single um you know the thing is her previous records didn't do as as well commercially, obviously, as some of her breakout material, that Call Me Maybe stuff, and so on and so forth, which is, you know, those songs are fine. Uh, I, I guess what I'm trying to get at here is that I anticipated that whatever her next project would be, she would try to move into a slightly more trendy direction or something that's going to appeal more widely. And it sounds like this song may in fact do that, but I think that comes at the sacrifice of the the smidge of personality and originality that came with her last record. The production is a little bland. I mean, it hits hard. It's very ethereal. It's uh, very tightly assembled and everything, but pretty much all of it from the uh, kind of rough, roaring, drony bass line to the booming percussion just feels very big, but also kind of flavorless, not a whole lot of texture and everything feels just super reverbed and washed out and arena sized. I mean, it's, it's got a big presentation, but I wouldn't say the sound of the instrumental on this thing has much, uh, has much, has much taste to it. Uh, just like a lot of boom, but um, not not a whole lot else, in my opinion. Uh, even with some of those like you know little fluttery synth string arpeggios flying in on the back end, which uh, you know kind of nice touch, but uh, again does doesn't really add that much overall to the instrumental. You know the one thing that I do like about this track are basically some of Carly's lyrics and uh, the vocal melody, especially on the hook. I do think the track builds up really nicely to the chorus. And then once that melody pops in, you don't care about me making love to myself back on my beat. It's a, it's, it's pretty sticky right from that initial chorus. By the time I had heard the second one, I was already anticipating it. Mouth was already watering. The melody was already pre playing in my head and stuck there. So it is a nice hook melodically speaking. I think it's a fine single. I think it's a passable single. Not really a whole lot to say about it, though I could say uh, that um, uh, my my assumptions or premonitions about uh, Carly's ongoing lyrical theme of just uh, uh, being forever alone uh, pretty much plays out on this song to the point where she is literally making love to herself in the lyrics over here and saying, party for one, you don't care about me. So obviously that that loneliness is still permeating her her lyric writing process. So that's that's kind of interesting, I suppose. But uh, yeah, it's a passable single, not going as crazy for it as uh, the material off of her emotion deluxe and emotion side B and that sort of thing. But uh, I guess it's kind of tough because I went into the single really wanting to like it, but 
I can't deny that I'm I'm really having a lack of a strong reaction here. And I think you legitimately could take that as probably a sign that this song is just really run-of-the-mill and boring, unfortunately, uh, even if it is passable, even if it is an okay single. And that is going to be it for this latest episode of the Needle Drop Podcast. Thank all of you for listening and subscribing and rating the podcast as well if you do get a chance either on iTunes or whatever platform you are listening to it on. Make sure to hit up theneedledrop.com, also twitter.com slash theneedledrop, youtube.com slash theneedledrop, and youtube.com slash fantano to keep up with all of our content week to week so you do not miss a thing. Also, shout out to Jonah, who assembles and puts together all of the episodes of the podcast, and we will see you guys or you will hear us in the next episode. Love you, love you, love you, love you, love you forever. Mm-hmm.